Well, as we turn to God's Word this morning, would you open uh, your copy of the Bible to Romans chapter 5? If you're using the Pew Bible, you'll find that on page 1119. Romans chapter 5, and I'm going to be preaching on verses 3 through 8 today, but we're going to just read verses uh, 1 through 11 together. Would you stand with me as a sign of reverence for the reading of God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible word? Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, and give special attention to verses 3 through 8. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, And endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Thus ends the reading of God's word. All flesh is like grass, and all of its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and its flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Amen. You may be seated. What is it that people generally boast about? When you hear people boasting, are they boasting about their successes? Or are they boasting about their failures? When you open up Instagram or Facebook and you see the pictures of your friends, do they show the perfectly presented meal at the fancy restaurant? Or do they show the hot dogs that they thought out for dinner and microwaved? Are they showing the pictures from the marathon they've just run, or are they showing a picture of the scale they're standing on after the holidays? Are they showing the house perfectly cleaned and arranged? Or are they showing the sink full of dirty dishes and hampers overflowing with dirty laundry? Or when people are making out a CV and they're creating a resume for a job, what do they include on it? Well, they certainly include their successes, they include their achievements, their qualifications, but what about the failed projects, the the projects that never really launched? What about the conflicts that they had with workers? 
What about the jobs they were fired from? The point is that when you are boasting, you are generally boasting about the things that you are proud of, the things that show your successes, the things that show your glory, your dignity, not the things that you have suffered, not the things that you're ashamed of, not the things that reveal your weakness. But you know, in 2 Corinthians, Paul gives us a sort of apostolic resume. He sort of lays out a CV for us. And the reason he does it is because in that context in 2 Corinthians, he's having to defend his apostolic credentials to the Corinthians. You see, there were some who appeared to be more qualified than Paul. They certainly appeared to have more successful ministries. They were definitely more eloquent than him. They looked the part. They were more attractive. Sometimes theologians refer to these men as the super apostles. They wore a cape on their backs, as it were. And it's really interesting, as Paul is defending his qualifications there, it's interesting what he includes. Here's what he says. These are his qualifications. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I have far more imprisonments, countless beatings. I've been often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes, save one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. I've been on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, in danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. I have lived in toil and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, and often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from those things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all of the churches. Who is weak? And I am not weak. Who is made to fall? And I am not indignant. If I must boast... If I must boast, I will boast in the things that show my weakness. When Paul gives his apostolic credentials, he does not list all the churches that he planted. He does not list all the converts that he'd made. He does not list the baptisms he'd performed or the sermons that he'd written or the letters that he'd penned. He does not list anything that could be construed to be a personal accomplishment. He just lists his sufferings and his weaknesses. Not how many churches he'd planted, but how many times he'd been imprisoned. Not how many converts had come to Christ, but how many lashes he'd received. Not how many baptisms performed, but how many dangers he'd encountered. He says, if I must boast... I will boast in the things that show my weakness. It's a good thing Paul didn't have an Instagram account. Why is this? Why, when he has the opportunity to boast and to say something about 
his apostolic credentials. It would be a great list to list all those churches, to list all those converts. Why does he boast in his sufferings? And he will go on to tell us in the next chapter. He said, because the Lord had taught him something. And this is what the Lord had taught him. The Lord had taught him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. And Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weaknesses, with insults, with hardships, with persecutions, with calamities, because when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul had come to understand that the Lord was using the sufferings of his life to shape him and conform him to Christ. And so you see, when Paul says today that we boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, Paul is not speaking about abstract things that he doesn't know about. He's not instructing you in something that he has no personal experience in. He is speaking as one who has learned because God has used his sufferings as the tool of his sanctification to mold him and shape him into the image of Christ. He's speaking as one who understands that our ability to endure these trials is the direct fruit and benefit of belonging to Christ, of being justified by Christ. Last week, we began to talk about these benefits and blessings of belonging to Christ and being justified in Christ. And let me just remind you again of what justification is. Justification is that declaration that in spite of your sinfulness and all of the wickedness of your life and past and present, God justifies sinners. That is, He declares them to be righteous, not because they actually are righteous, but because He accounts to them, He imputes to them the righteousness of Christ. And the way that they receive it is by faith alone. And that righteous declaration, that fact that we are justified in Him, it comes with benefits. It comes with certain advantages. And last week we began to look at these advantages that Paul lists for us. The advantage of having peace with God. That we are no longer at war with Him. But that we have been reconciled to Him through His Son. We have peace with Him. Not only do we have peace with Him, we have access to Him. We can come to Him in prayer. We belong and have a standing in the grace of His presence. Not only do we have peace and access, but we can rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now today in verse 3, we go on to more benefits. Not only that. Not only do we have peace and access and hope. We have something more. And so today, as we look at these verses, we're going to go on to look at uh, what more benefits we have in Christ, namely, that having been justified by faith in Christ, God now shapes us in our sufferings, and He sustains us in His love. Those are the two blessings and benefits of justification we're going to look at today, that God shapes us in our sufferings, and He sustains us in His love. So look at verses 3 through 4 with me. Paul says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering 
produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Not only do we have peace with God and access in this grace and hope, but now we have the ability to actually boast in our sufferings. I mentioned last week, you'll notice that I'm saying boast in our sufferings, and your Bible probably says rejoice in our sufferings. Uh, But I mentioned last week that this word, uh, both in verse 2 and in verse 3, is actually the word boast. It means to take glory in something. Prior to chapter 5, Paul had only used that word negatively. We have nothing to boast about, right, when it comes to keeping the law. We have nothing to boast about when it comes to our ethnicity. Even Abraham had nothing to boast about before God. But now, having been justified by faith, we have something to boast about. We can boast in hope of the glory of God, and we can boast in our sufferings. How is it that boasting has been turned from a negative word into a positive word? Why is this trait that was repulsive to Paul when he saw it in others, why is that now a trait to be commended? Well, I think it's for the very simple reason that the boasting in view here is not at all in us or in anything that we have done or could be. The boasting here is not in the things that show us to be great, that magnify our goodness. The boasting here is in the things that magnify God's goodness and God's greatness. And one of the things that magnifies the glory of God in our lives is our sufferings, is our weaknesses, are the things that show how much we need His grace. Think again of what Paul said. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. When I am weak, then I am strong. How does this work? How is it that we are made strong through our weaknesses? Well, Paul uses a a training metaphor, doesn't he? A metaphor, uh, for those of you who exercise or work out, you'll understand this. The reason we can boast in our sufferings is because we know something about sufferings. We know that they produce endurance, and that endurance produces character, and that character produces hope. I once did this uh, exercise routine called Couch to 5K. The name of the app that I downloaded pretty much sums it all up, right? This was an app that promised to take me from being a couch potato uh, to running a 5K in one month. And the way it worked is that you would put headphones in your ears and you would start the app and it would tell you to start walking. And then after a little while it would say, now run. And then after you'd run for a little while it would say, now walk. And then it would go on, now run. And at first I thought, well, this is really easy. There's a lot of walking. But with every day, the cycles of walking became a little less and the cycles of running became a little more. What the app was doing was it was building my endurance, my ability to run for just a little bit longer each time. And pretty soon I found that it wasn't so easy anymore. Now my lungs started burning and my joints started aching, but I kept at it. And as I kept at it, 
I gained a sense of confidence, and I grew in hope that maybe I can actually do this. And I did do it. And by the end of a month, I was running 5K, and by the end of two months, I was running 10K. And the more I ran, the more the suffering of running was producing endurance in me. And endurance was producing character. And character was producing hope. And I gained confidence through the things that I endured and I suffered. And Paul says, that is sort of what it's like in the Christian life. As we suffer as Christians, those fiery trials that we have to endure, they are the very things that God uses to build our character. What does Paul mean by character? It's an interesting word. It's a word that refers to something that has been tested and proved. He uses this word of Timothy when he he says, you know Timothy's proven worth. You know his character. Character is a quality that has stood the test, that has proven itself. What sort of character or proven worth does God desire that would come from our suffering? I think that's a good question. What is he after? What is the proven worth? Is it just that we would man up? That we would toughen up? That we would get a stiff upper lip? I don't think so. I think we might say that the sort of character in view is very simply the the character of Christ himself. That is, after all, what God is doing in our lives. He is conforming us into the image of Christ. In Romans 8, Paul is going to say that God's goal, the reason he has predestined his people to salvation, is so that he might conform them to the image of his Son. And then right after he says he's conforming them to the image of his son, he rattles off off this whole list of suffering, of tribulation, of distress, of persecution, of famine, of nakedness, of danger, of sword. What does he say? In all of those things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You know, I think that we so often prioritize our own comfort. God has different priorities for us. He does not so much prioritize our comfort as he prioritizes our conformity to Christ. Peter uses an even slightly different metaphor, but I think it's equally useful. In 1 Peter, here's what he comments about suffering. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is one of my favorite metaphors in Scripture. Peter imagines a goldsmith working at his oven, doesn't he? When a goldsmith wants to refine the gold, some, he gets some raw gold mined from the earth and it's full of impurities and it's full of other metals. How does he purify it? How does he refine it? The best way is to expose it to the fire, to put it in the oven. And there in the oven, all of the impurities and all of the dross rise to the surface. And as the goldsmith begins to remove those impurities, as he scrapes those impurities off the surface of that molten metal, 
he begins to see his own reflection shining back in the metal. And I think Peter is saying that God is like a goldsmith in this way, that he uses the fiery trials of suffering in our lives the same way that a goldsmith uses his oven. Through our trials, he is testing the genuineness of our faith. More precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, so that in the end it will result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. As he removes that dross and all of those impurities, the glory and honor of his own reflection shines back at him. And I think this is the reason that Paul can say that we can boast in our sufferings because we know that God has good purposes in them. He uses them. He is building our endurance. He's conforming us to the character of Christ. And he's using them all to give us hope. In that famous book of his, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis uses this analogy. He says, imagine yourself as a living house, and God comes to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right. He's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on, and you knew those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But he presently starts knocking about the house in a way that hurts abominably, in a way that seems to not make any sense. What on earth is he up to? And the explanation is that he is building quite a different house than the one you thought of. He's throwing up a new wing here. He's putting an extra floor there. He's running up towers and making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage. But he is building a palace. And he intends to come and to live in it. And so he does. He not only intends, he does come to live in us by his spirit. You see, that's what comes next. He says that this hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. What does it mean that hope does not put us to shame? I think what the translators are getting at is that we're not ashamed by this hope. We're not put to shame by this hope that we have. I actually think we're better off translating this the way the NET does, that it's a hope that does not disappoint. I think that's a little more to the point. We talk about having our hopes crushed or having our hopes shattered, having our hopes disappointed. And Paul says here, we will not have our hopes disappointed in the gospel. Maybe you've come to Christ and you're wondering, is this going to disappoint me like everything else has disappointed me? And here Paul says, no. This will not crush your hopes. And the reason it will not crush your hopes is because God's love is poured out into your heart through the Holy Spirit. And that, that brings us to our second and final point here. Not only does God shape us through suffering, but he sustains us through love. Just reflect on that statement for a moment that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. By the way, this is one of the reasons that we speak of the Holy Spirit as the one who applies the benefits of redemption in our lives. 
who takes all that God the Father has planned and purposed, all that has been won and accomplished through the Son, and He applies them. God is pouring His love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. But think about that language. It's poured into our hearts. It reminds me, it's it's the language of abundance, right? It reminds me of the language of Psalm 23, that my cup overflows. It's not a little bit. It's a lot of bit. This is why our hope doesn't disappoint, because our hearts are overflowing with the love of God, a love that is secure, that sustains us in the midst of suffering. And what does this love look like? That's what he goes on to describe. Verses 6 through 8, he says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What does it mean that while we were weak? What does it mean to be weak? It means to be lacking in all strength, right? We lacked in all spiritual strength and all ability to do anything for ourselves before the Lord. And so if we are going to be saved, it has to be all of God. He has to step in and to do it. And so He does. And He does it at just the right time. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. At the right time just simply means at the fitting time, at the appointed time, at the time when we needed it the most while we were still weak in all of our helplessness, in all of our ungodly sinfulness. At that time when there was absolutely nothing in us that was lovely, when there was nothing attractive about us, nothing to commend us to God, at that moment, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And He died for the ungodly. That is to say, He died in the place of the ungodly. He died as a substitute. He exchanged His perfect life of godliness for our lives of ungodliness. Let that sink in. His perfect life of godliness for your life of ungodliness. He died for the ungodly. And then Paul helps helps us to understand how extraordinary this is by what he says next, how contrary it is to what we should think. He says, for scarcely, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. Paul's reasoning is like this. There may be those rare occasions, right, when somebody is actually willing to die for someone else. But even in those rare occasions... It's usually because the person is deemed worth saving. That they are someone who is respectable. Someone who is esteemed. Someone whose life is deemed more valuable. No honorable person is laying down their life for a thug or for a terrorist. But that's what makes the love of God such a wonderful absurdity. Because that's exactly what God does. God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
This is the chief demonstration of God's love. It is the death of His Son. And note what it does not say. It does not say that because Christ died for us, therefore God shows us His love. As if Christ had to do something to make the Father love us. No, it was because God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes will not perish but have eternal life. It's because God sets His love on His people from eternity, even in their ungodliness and sinfulness, that He sent His Son. And so, beloved, if if you are ever doubting whether or not God loves you, all you need to do is look to the cross. All you need to do is remember the cross. Because there at the cross, we find the most perfect and profound expression of God's love. You know, it can be tempting to think that God's love is like ours, that it's it's, uh, capricious, or that it's impulsive, that it's fickle, that it depends on how well I am doing at loving Him. If that were the case, no one would have any hope at all. But the love of God is not like ours. The love of God is eternal and unchangeable as God is Himself. It does not waffle or wane based on your performance. It does not ebb or flow based on the kind of week you've had. It is as sure and steady as God Himself. And you know what the surest proof of that is? It's that He set His love on you before while you were still a sinner. And so if you're sinning this week, guess what? He set His love on His people from eternity while they were yet sinners. While they were ungodly. And if while they were ungodly, He sent His Son, if He did not spare His Son, how will He not also give us all things in Him? He sent His Son while there was nothing lovely or praiseworthy to commend us. Just the opposite. We were spiritual thugs. We were cosmic terrorists. We were the enemies of God, haters of God, haters of others. And yet, even while we were enemies, God gave His Son. Maybe that sounds too good to be true. Does it? It is true. And one of the great benefits of having been justified and accounted righteous before God through faith is that God now sustains your faith through His love. Through that love that is poured out in your heart, that overflows in you as you think and meditate and reflect on what He's done. This is how you can endure in the midst of suffering because you know that God is using these things to shape you and to conform you into the image of Christ. And this is why you have a hope that will not disappoint because that love has been poured out in your heart. The other day, I was scrolling and I, one of these things on X that I have is just these quotes from preachers. And this, this quote came up from the great English preacher Charles Spurgeon. Unfortunately, I don't know the context because it's just a quote. (laughs) 
and I couldn't find it in his writings. But here's what he said. He said, in heaven, we shall finally see that we had not one trial too many. In heaven, we shall finally see that we had not one trial too many. That is to say that when we at last have that glorified perspective of heavenly hindsight, we are going to look back at our lives and we are going to see that God gave us just what we needed. All that we needed that was for our good and that was for His own glory, we will see that He sustained us all the way in His love and He used our sufferings to shape us, to build our endurance, to conform our character to His Son, and to give us hope. And the glorious thing is actually that you don't have to wait now. You don't have to wait until glory to see that because God's Word tells it to you today. And so today, as you reflect on His Word, know that it is in your weakness that God's strength is perfected. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You that we can even boast in our weaknesses because we know that You are using our weaknesses and our sufferings to conform us into the image of Christ, and through them You are building up our endurance so that we might run the race of faith, that we might not lose hope, but that we might be encouraged all the more as we see that day drawing near. Lord, we pray that You would build us up in the inner man for this great race and that we would run in faith. And Lord, we pray that we would not be ashamed of our weaknesses and our sufferings, but that we would glory in the God who is strong in the midst of them. And so we ask all of these things in Jesus' name and to the glory of your Son. Amen. You know, sometimes... Sometimes you find a hymn that just perfectly (laughs) sums up what you were trying to say in the sermon. And I feel like that's true about that hymn, that, that reflection, wonderful reflection on the love of God that we see best in the Son whom He sent. And we see that expression of the love of God also here in the Lord's Supper because the Lord's Supper is not a different word than the word of the gospel. It is just a visible proclamation of the word of the gospel. Here in the supper, we see the love of God put on beautiful display for us. Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And he gave it to his disciples, and he said that this is my body that I'm giving for you. And I want you to remember this. And he took wine. And he said, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for you. At the right time, Christ came and died for the ungodly. And that is what the Lord's Supper preaches. It preaches His perfect life, His body broken, His blood poured out in exchange for your ungodly life. And yet, He invites all those who have faith to come to this table and to eat of this bread, and to drink of this wine. How beautiful is the gospel. And so if you're here and you are even grieved by your sins, you've confessed them to God, and maybe you're doubting about whether or not you should even come to this table, 
If you are trusting in Christ, if you have faith in Christ, if you are His disciple, baptized into His name, belonging to His church, then come. Because this is the place where God pours out His love into your heart by the Holy Spirit. Come and have your hearts refreshed. But some of you have not come to know Christ. Some of you are here today, maybe you're visiting with us, and you have not professed your faith in Christ. You don't know the love of Christ. For you, even though you might let these elements pass you by today, let me encourage you to not let Christ pass you by today. The Bible says that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever looks to Christ in faith will be saved. And so if you, if you want to follow Christ and be his disciple and have that love of God poured out in your heart to be justified, I would love for you to come and to talk with me after, after the service. I'd love to talk with you about that. But today as we come, let's come with faith, believing and trusting that God's love is here to be received. Let's pray and ask that these ordinary elements uh, might be set apart for this holy use. Lord, as we come to your table, we feel very much our inadequacy to come. And yet, Lord, we see your adequacy. We see your ability. We see your strength. We see your godliness put on display. And we see that it is for us. And so we pray that you would help us now to come in faith and to rest in you, to set aside all of the accusations of our enemy and the accusations of our own heart, and to hear your word of peace and pardon. And Lord, we pray that you would even now in this meal pour out your love into our hearts by your Holy Spirit, that we would be overflowing with the reminder that you gave yourself even while we were ungodly. And if you did not spare your own son, how will you not also give us all things in him? So encourage our hearts in faith and, and use these ordinary, ordinary elements of bread and wine now for this holy purpose, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.